Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Conversation in Veterinary Pathology, the ACVP podcast, brought to you by the American College of Veterinary Pathologists. The purpose of this podcast is to bring the veterinary pathology community together to bolster our connections and spread knowledge. Veterinary pathologists are out there changing the world. So welcome to the podcast. I'm Dr. Hannah Atkins, and this is Dr. Carolyn Labriola. Welcome. Today's guest is Dr. Lori Deal, 2024 President of the American College of Veterinary Pathologists. In this episode, we talk to Dr. Deal about ACVP's commitment to training, attracting trainees to academia, her journey in pathology, and what she's looking forward to at the 2024 ACVP ASVCP annual meeting in Seattle, Washington this fall. Now let's get to the conversation. We've talked and we're super open to ask you any questions that you think would be really important to answer. If there's any questions that you've gotten a lot during this meeting that you've heard or, or things from the board that you would like to disseminate? Sure. I mean, what I'd like people to understand about the board is we're not some, you know, anonymous, unapproachable group. Sometimes I see people wondering, well, when's this decision going to be announced or what's the board doing on that? Um, We're actually just the next step of evolution of the same set of volunteers that you guys all or working with if you're on committees or, or teams. And most of us are doing this just because we've also had a run through ACVP that's been great. And, and we want the college to continue to provide that for people in the future. And so I guess if I could get anything out to the larger college is like, if you're worried about something, if you don't understand why something's happening, or it seems like it's being done under cover of darkness, like reach out. It probably isn't. I I have come to the realization um, during this meeting that some people are worried about a couple of initiatives that we're taking on, um, specifically the CEB, which is the um, exam committee, sort of in layman's terms, um, is going to have a new charter. and, And there's been worry about what does that mean? And that's going to get rolled out to the whole membership. And maybe what we could have been slightly more transparent on is exactly what the timeline is, right? And and remind people that this actually comes out as a bylaws change. So you will, you'll get to see it, you'll get to weigh in on it. And then training program accreditation and core competencies. Those are things that the larger membership knows are happening, but they probably haven't heard a lot of details. And and that actually reflects that the committees are working hard on these and the committees themselves or the or the task forces don't feel like it's quite far enough along in there. But maybe what we as the board could do better is say, okay, um, we're going to just give you updates. We're going to let you know where it's at. We're going to re- provide clarity to the college that they will get to see this output. That It's not a, a lack of desire for the college to know. It's just like more the way humans work, that you get busy with something and then you forget to say something. And I I live that in my work life and we um, get that sometimes in our board of directors life. And so, you know, I would just encourage members of the college to remember that we work for you. Yeah, it's not that you're trying to be clandestine. Sometimes 
it's difficult to disseminate information if people in the committee feel like that information isn't formed well enough to give the actual picture. Sure. I mean, and and I feel comfortable, you know, that I've worked with you guys for a while, right, through the Media and Communications Committee. And there would have probably been times along the road to this podcast where you wouldn't have felt like it was time to announce that this was going to happen because it was a work in progress of getting it set up. And, and now it's it's out there in the public. And it wasn't, uh, you know, a desire for lack of transparency. It was just giving you some some room to run and, and get this, you know, amazing opportunity for the college to have this podcast off the ground. So anyway, I, I hope that if people feel worried um, about what we're doing or worried about the changes in the college and stuff, that they will reach out. And, and to the extent that it is possible that there is actually a a product that the committees or the board is actually um, has to release, um, we could provide information. Otherwise, I think we can provide sort of visibility on how this is progressing, even if there's not like an actual plan that can be rolled out yet. How might a member then best reach out? There's a, a general contact um, email for ACVP um, on the website and that's probably the easiest way if you don't specifically know somebody on the board already um, and you know we do take that member um, information seriously and, and then depending on what the question is um, or the concern is that would drive how the response would be right for instance if it came up you know f- through committee members right and, and that's not an uncommon way for concerns to be raised to the board. Then an easy way to do that would be for committee members to talk to their committee chairs, committee chairs to talk to their board of directors liaison. That, you know, gets discussed as needed by the board and maybe even turns into a, a board meeting with the committee itself or comes back through the liaison if it's something fairly simple. So that email is info at acvp.org. And additionally, if you feel like your question can be initially answered by a specific committee, first, there are descriptions of what each committee does on the website. And within the members portal, if you go to the committee's link, there is a clickable URL that says find I'm paraphrasing, but it says you can find the committee member chairs if you click here, and there is a whole list, and then either their emails will be on that site, or if you then search them through the member search portal, that's how you can find their information to ask that question. We did have a little bit of opportunity to go speak to some members and ask if they had any questions that they wanted to hear you answer. Okay. Uh, my name is Basil Asaf. I am a distinguished scientist at uh, Sanofi in the preclinical safety assessment department. And my question is, what can we do to encourage future students into joining residency programs and be next generation pathologist? Okay, that is great. And um, our strategic plan specifically calls out um, the desire to um, get students more engaged with the idea that they will go on and and do pathology residencies, whether it's anatomic or clinical pathology. And then 
the strategic plan also calls out residents. Um, how can we make that uh, residency experience really work for the college? How can we set those residents up for success? I think with students, um, the student engagement committee is going to be the, the primary um, functional arm of that. And, and I think that there's a lot of uh, room for involvement of individual veterinary students with that. And I would encourage people who would like to do that to get involved with their own um, student chapters and then consider how they can engage sort of in the uh, more national effort to organize that. I think that's a, a huge opportunity area. And because ACVP is so volunteer driven, like that's a fantastic way to practice for your future life. And I think that would also serve you very well in, in your application into residency programs. What are the financial goals in supporting getting students to join the ACVP? There is rising student debt, which might be a barrier, um, and there might be programs that are not as accessible to certain individuals. How does the ACVP go about supporting having different programs and showing a veterinary student that they can get to that goal? I mean, that's a great question, and it's a hard question, but it is something that we're all thinking about. So we just actually had a conversation the other day, the board did, with the the incoming president of AVMA, and one of the things we talked about is the crazy levels of, of student debt and how we we think and and she agreed that that's making um, veterinary students feel like their career choices are very limited um, and I think it's a work in progress it's a really hard thing to solve for sure um, so the AVMA is is looking to see if there are things that they can do I think being able to outreach to veterinary students and, and have some conversations about that, for lack of a better way to say it, could be financial literacy. And um, I mean, some of that hopefully happens before they go to vet school around, you know, making choices about where to go to school and how much money to borrow and stuff. So I don't mean that because once you're sort of in that by the time you'd be on our radar, probably that that's too late. So um, I think it's more like, yes, you're graduating with a lot of debt and it might seem like you're locked into one choice because of that debt right now. But if they could have a little bit more visibility to sort of the investment, right? Like for DVMs and MDs, that there is actually a value from that residency investment so you you don't make as much money during that time um but that that income could be higher because you've made that investment also um there's opportunities um for some loan forgiveness if you take a you know sort of a public service option which many academic roles actually do and I, I don't think that's widely understood by students and it is a conversation that I think is super important right like we do have a pipeline problem in academia right now and um, 
I don't want to discourage people from academia, even though the, the salaries may look lower than some other options, because loan forgiveness is actually potentially huge. So if that's really where your calling is, just knowing that might tip the balance. And, and, and actually literally knowing that when you're in vet school is, you know, one more thing that you could weigh into your equation. And then, um, yeah, I, I mean, because I'm a lot older than you guys, I mean, student loan debt was not such a big thing when I got out, although it felt big, right? It, it really did. But, uh, you know, it, it kind of balances out over a, a, a career. It, it's hard when you're in your mid-20s or early 30s to think what, what the finances of a career will look like when you, you know you're 25 or 30 years in but that is a, a true career trajectory however the survey the salary survey I believe was in 2020 mm-hmm. on finances within the veterinary pathology community there was also a lot of statistics about um, demographics and locations etc that's publicly available yes Yes, uh, and I think that's really valuable, although I tend to think about it as it's valuable to understand what you're worth so that when you negotiate. So even, you know, for academic positions, um, understanding what what your value is to help with the, the initial negotiations for industry positions to make sure that you're being, you know, sort of slotted into a, a correct band, um, and then, you know, there there are elements of jobs that you take more for love than money, but, like, you still should be paid comparable to other people in that, that sector, right? Because we have, we have people that do a lot of different things in our college, and, you know, maybe you do want to work for a nonprofit, um, or maybe you, you want to go into government work because, you know, that might give you a chance to to do something just completely different and aligned with your interests. And, you know, those might not be the most highly compensated parts of, of the um, industry, but you should know what your peers make so that you can have those conversations. So that at letting people know that that exists, right? Um, I mean, I would turn the question back to you. How as uh, you know as young people in the profession how how um apparent is it to you that these resources like the salary survey is there and are the things that the board or the relevant committees i think the member relations committee is actually the group that does our our salary survey are there things that we should do to make sure that's more broadly publicized well i think that um that the website with the Media and Communications Committee and the management company, AMC, is in the works. It takes a lot of work to get something like that to a place where all these things are apparent, where the many facets that will be helpful to the members are up and running, but it is a work in progress. And of course, the MCC always is looking for feedback and new members, shout out. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, info at acvp.org. But I think that my view is that something like the MCC, something like the Student Engagement Committee and others can really act as that communications to get that out. 
I was part of the 2020 salary survey. I remember actually filling out the survey. So that's how I realized there was such a, a survey. Um, and I remember it getting sent out. And I've, I've used it for two um, job applications uh, for, for looking up salary and for negotiations. And I appreciate how it was split by sex and region because that really helped being a younger female uh, looking at the male salary. And that helped so much with negotiations and having that imposter syndrome, decreased self-worth, and being able to look and say, hey, a male counterpart should get paid a certain amount. And someone with my experience, which was also helpful to know that, would get paid a certain amount. And it actually significantly helped me with salary negotiations. So I appreciate that. That is so wonderful to hear, right? Yeah. And because of that, I've been handing it out to our residents as they're negotiating. Um, and, and I think it's been a great resource for them as well. So I, I appreciate that initiative from the ACDP. And I know that the Lifelong Learning Committee has had and been currently working on putting out seminars like that, like the financial wellness initiatives, mm-hmm. which which are helpful. Uh, and just to throw in a fun anecdote, I knew about the survey, and I would bring it up during residency and show my husband and say, I know, I know, but look, it'll be okay. <laughs> Well, that's funny because I met my husband when I was a resident and then I went and did a postdoc and I think he was despairing that I would ever make any money. Um, But it does get better. It really does. (laughs) Absolutely. If it's okay, I would like to go back and and highlight the program that you were talking about because I am passionate about getting the word out. The current government program, as we are sitting here at the 2023 ACVP-ASVCP annual meeting, that the government has in place is called Public Service Loan Forgiveness. And to really sum so that we can hear more from Lori, because that's why we're here, is that if you work for a non-for-profit, doesn't need to be consecutive, but if you are working full-time after 120 payments, you can get your loans forgiven. So that is 10 years versus some other programs that are 25 or longer. You do, of course, need to have certain loans, mostly through the government, but they do have a lot of information on that. And one thing I think would be really helpful for residents to know, this of course does not apply to everyone, and I am sorry that it does not, but a lot of residency programs are non-for-profit. And so if you are paying back your loans during that time, those count towards your payments and can be retroactively put in. You don't need to go in every month or even every year, though they do recommend that. Thank you. Yes, we should publicize that very widely. That is really important information. And you can actually get someone within your institution to certify it every year so that you know you're on the right track so that 10 years don't go by and they don't say, oh, no, we're sorry, it didn't count. So on that point, right, so knowing that there is financial help out there or financial plans, I think that that's a really good transition into another question that one of our members was able to ask at the annual meeting. There was a talk here at the meeting about the exodus of pathologists from academia. Could you talk about what was said during that talk and what are the plans going forward? Okay, so um, I unfortunately was in a meeting and wasn't able to attend that that talk. So I've, I've heard parts of what happened. It sounded like some really important things came up. Um, I would be interested in knowing, you know, more if, if members want to um, follow up. But I think there might have been two, two pathways that are things that should be talked about. First, it, it's like the, the exodus of... Um, people from academia and and that's 
that's an existential threat, uh, honestly, to uh, ACVP, to pathology, but it's not unique to pathology, right? It's happening um, in many subspecialties, maybe all the subspecialties, but many of the veterinary subspecialties, there's something very, very similar that's happening in the MD community as well, right? And I think, you know, we are definitely trying to find out, one of the strategic plan goals is to try to provide more documentation about why that's happening because I think there's a lot of opinions. I have opinions, right? But where the truth is, is a challenge, right? Is it, is it money? Is it working conditions? Is it, you know, wellness issues? Um, I think probably all of those things do academic, some academic institutions need to, you know, evolve with the times. Do we need to be more creative in how we get pathologists trained? All of those things are probably true, and they're probably different from institution to institution. Um, there's definitely competition out there in the market for pathologists as well and that that could it could be a driver or it could be it just is an excuse right like it, it could be that the the issues that are making people career change are primarily because somebody's you know saying hey look there's this other opportunity that you didn't know about before think about it or it could be well, I'm, I'm reaching the end of my rope and I'm looking for an opportunity. I don't know what the, the breakdown is of that. And that probably segues into the, the second thing that I believe was said at this meeting, but I, I don't know for sure, which was, you know, some conversation about working conditions and wellness issues. And, and um, I wish that I had been there to hear that because it's actually pretty hard for me um, to comment about what was said in that meeting, but I, I do think wellness is an incredibly important thing. It's important for veterinary students, it's important for our residents, and it's important for not just our, our faculty, but frankly in all career sectors, right? And, you know, we have wellness initiatives that are, are baked into various aspects of the college. Often we we try to roll those in just in a practical way to the lifelong learning efforts, but um, they, you know, they also are an important thing in DEI. Um, once we have, uh, you know, program training program accreditation, wellness is, you know, in some form going to be at least um, mentioned in there, and and. I think that actually gets into one thing that's worth understanding is um, the ACVP as a, an organization, the board of directors as, as one arm of that. We can influence, but there are many places where we can't mandate. And one of the, one of the things that we may not be able to mandate um, effectively, but I hope we can influence more effectively, is some of these wellness um, issues, you know, that uh, particularly as they impact residents, but um, each you know each academic institution is its own thing. It, it, you know it's got its own hierarchy that is not in any way answerable to ACVP. So we can try, you know, to 
consolidate sort of the voices of our members and advocate for them. And we do have a, an advocacy and policy committee, um, which I would really encourage people who, who feel very passionate of, about how do you get from sort of the local wellness initiatives that ACVP can um, run to, you, we wanna lobby on, on a bigger scale. Advocacy and policy is probably a committee that you might want to look into and see, you know, as a volunteer exercise. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll all do the best we can. And the other part is maybe, you know, um, empowering people, you know, our, our um, college, our trainees, um, our students are becoming more and, and, and more um, women, you know, as a, a percentage of that, which I think is perfectly lovely. I mean, I, I think um, it should be a, a profession that's safe for, for all genders, all, all um, people of any, any chosen description that, that they like, right? Um, uh, but like, I definitely think that making women feel empowered to say yes, that th those wellness issues are, it's okay. I should be able to say this. I, I, I don't have to back away from, from, you know, sort of claiming what is important for us, that this should be a safe space, that we should have some consideration of, of the biological clock if, if women want to, to have children, things like that. And, you know, there's probably a lot of other subgroups within the college that also need to be encouraged um, in that way. It might be easier for me to say that about women because I have that lived experience, but what I'd like is other, other segments of the college for people to feel safe that they can also share, you know, what is necessary for them to feel safe and, and protected. And it's a conversation, right? Because many things where you don't have control, but you have influence, you have to have good conversations. And I, I guess that might be the summary of what I got out of it is people need that space to be able to share with others and increase understanding. Um, and then I would ask you guys, right? Does that kind of, does that accord with what you were hearing from people? Some of our residents want to hear about that just to kind of help them make their career decisions and seeing if if they could kind of glean on to quality of life or other aspects of positions that they might be interested in mm -hmm. in the future. And I, I think they said that there, there were also a lot of high emotions in that meeting, as understandable, you know, talking right. about lived experiences. Mm -hmm. And so, so that's kind of the main takeaway that I got. Um, would have really loved to have been in the, in the, um, in the discussion. So you said you have collaborated with the AVMA um, and that this exodus is happening across the board. Has the board collaborated with the American Board of Veterinary Specialties, ABVS, to talk about this issue? Yeah, I mean, that, there is a liaison relationship, but our COO um, does, um, you know, have conversations with them. I don't know how much at that level is being addressed about this right now. I think every every organization it, it is kind of trying to deal with this on its own, which is one reason we talked with the AVMA um, president about it, right? Like it's becoming very clear that this is a problem. I It's less clear how we can band together and deal with it. Some of the 
some of the things like student loan debt, that's a, everyone's got that issue. If, if there are other problems, though, I think maybe we need to get a deeper understanding at the front end of the pipeline of what other issues might be there. I mean, because, you know, one thing could be maybe nobody's actually telling people about the options they have in a way that sounds interesting and compelling. And so, you know, people are coming out of veterinary school and, you know, it may be dead, it may be something else, but it may just be that like 100% of what they've seen convinces them that, you know, they're going to go right into clinical practice rather than going into any of the specialties. So I think we, we have a little bit of a knowledge gap. And I think this is one of these things that has been trending this way for a long time and, and um, all of the specialties sort of failed to recognize what was happening until it actually got to a, a really acute phase. It, it, and I'm talking about the pipeline out of, you know, students to residents. Um, I think the, the problem of established faculty leaving um, academia, that's a separate problem. I, I, I think like most things, you need to ask the questions, you know, in a very specific way so that you can tease out. Because I'm very sure that, you know, the choice that a, a student makes, you know, to go into an internship or a residency is dictated by different things than, uh, you know, somebody who's been in, in academia for 15 years making a decision to leave for a different career option. I, I'm sure those are driven by different things. I just don't know exactly what those things are for my interactions during this meeting i don't work with residents at my current position um, both hannah and i went to a small program at a comparative medicine institution um, but when i speak to residents sometimes who are in the veterinary school residencies i'm not always sure that they understand the breadth of opportunities that are available within academia. Sometimes, I think that a lot of veterinary school professors do a really good job at showing them what the options are, but coming to a meeting like this or being able to hear more voices can show them that it doesn't always have to look exactly like the initial way that you were introduced to academia. I think that's a great point. Um... I'm also demonstrably not an expert on academia um, since the, my last time in academia was when I did a postdoc, and and that's getting to be, well, my my oldest child was born when I was a postdoc, and she's 25 right now, so that gives you a sense of how long ago it was. Um, but I think that's true, right? There, there's a lot of different flavors of, of academia, and um, working with my colleagues, right? There's, there's traditional veterinary school, but then even there's diversity within veterinary schools, right? Some veterinary schools have, you know, a diagnostic lab uh, sort of baked in that has an academic teaching role. Um, sometimes that's the entirety of the program. Sometimes there's a more research um, heavy you know, academic department and a diagnostic lab, and all of them have responsibilities to teaching students. When I was in training, the diagnostic lab actually didn't have any 
exposure to the residents in, in general terms. So we saw a very, you know, um, either research or traditional teaching routes. And so the diagnostic lab was this black box that we were aware of but didn't have exposures to. But I think they'd all fit in the academic bin. And then I certainly have lots of colleagues who are at medical schools. And, and that's a... Uh, that's an important um, work stream, right? Where the the work is very diverse depending on where you're at. And I have a special place in my heart for those because I did this sort of unusual thing where I did my residency, finished my PhD. Then I went and did a postdoc. Then I studied for boards, which I don't actually recommend to people because that doesn't give you a, a study cohort. But I landed at Stanford and... I worked with the comparative medicine department there to get access to their library. I worked with some um, local industry types who had access to slide sets and and studied that way. And so I actually have a, a very soft spot in my heart for, for medical school comparative medicine departments because I wouldn't be uh, a boarded um, ACVP member if uh, they hadn't really just been kind and supportive and said, hey, you know, I don't know why you did it this way, but it's entirely possible with determination to do whatever you you want. I'm just going to talk again, and I feel really terrible because I don't want this to be about me, but um, I am very passionate about bringing together study cohorts that are perhaps studying in a non-traditional manner. And so if you are an individual who does not have a group to study with if maybe you are resitting maybe you have been working for a bit and don't have that exposure please reach out to me and i will do my best to help you all meet that is awesome right because i do think that life happens and 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 people move along with things and there are ways i mean i think you and i um actually share the experience that we didn't necessarily do everything in the most traditional way possible, but um, it is it is entirely possible to still take the boards and pass them, and um, and it's great. Like we do have affiliate membership for people who um, are either in parallel professions or have done the training and really don't want to take the boards and not. But I would encourage, it, it is an excellent career option to take the boards. And so you're doing a public service by, by saying that. I really feel that way. Just because you struggle doesn't mean that you won't get there. Yeah. These conversations are really important. And it seems like you were really open to continuing these. But we'd also like to know who you are, Dr. Lori Deal. Could you tell us about your training journey and how you got into pathology? I grew up on a, a farm in, in Kansas uh, where there were way more ca cows in our county than humans. And uh, I was going to be a large animal vet. Like, large animal vets were my heroes. They were the most educated people that I knew. They were interesting. They, you know, they, they got to do cool things. And, and so I went to Kansas State um, as an undergrad, did three years of undergrad, got in, accepted into vet school went to vet school. Um, I know not every program is like this anymore, but we had a heavy emphasis on pathology in that first year. And I loved it. We had an old German pathologist, Horst Leipold, who taught us. I was like, wow, 
Um, and and so that that was fantastic. I was like, I'm going to be a pathologist when I grow up. I don't have to get up in a snowstorm in the middle of the night and pull a calf. Well, the cow is tied to the bumper of my pickup truck, right? <laughs> and I was like, oh, it's a whole different life experience that I I never imagined could be there. And then I, after that, I ended up taking, they had a required virology course built in, you know, a veterinary virology course. And I was like, viruses? Viruses are so interesting. Wow, science is interesting. But I didn't have a, I mean, you know, people growing up like I did, we never, I mean, science as a, a discipline was not something you ever saw. Like, I think that's part of why I was so excited about veterinarians is it was a, a, a version of science, right? And, and then like, oh, there's something like more basic science-y. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to be a pathologist. Boy, I love that virology. And so I got accepted to the residency at Colorado State. Um, and then, you know, I just can't say enough good things about that program. I got a fantastic um, pathology training, and I got fantastic research training. My mentor um, was Ed Hoover, who I just, you know, he was a, a really formative influence on my life um, and, and on a lot of, of his trainees' lives, right? And and um, worked on viruses and and then um, finished up there. I said, oh, I want to do I want to do scientific research. So I went off and and I did a, a postdoc. And this is the part I, I hope people hear, right? Like sometimes you can tell your story and everything's just oh, everything was just the way I planned it and it all went perfectly and that wasn't actually true I, I'd gotten married at the end of my residency we decided we wanted to have a kid I had a kid and I realized man like the road to you know independently funded scientific research is not actually compatible with what I personally as a human being want for my family life and I'm like okay regroup Let's get serious about boards. Let's take the boards. Let's get a, 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 you know, go to industry. And then I was super lucky. I started out my career at Genentech, which, you know, had had a, a an element of serious research as well as pathology. So I kind of got to do the best of both. But it wasn't like a super well planned thing. And and life happened, and we accommodate. And that's what I would say. That's why I, I love so much when Carolyn talked about like maybe the less traditional cohorts of studying and stuff is like, you know, life happens, roll with it. If, you know, sort of take best advantage of what you got at any moment in time and don't feel like a failure if it doesn't all come together exactly the way you thought it would, but be open to new possibilities. So that was my life and it's worked out fine. So we'll kind of wrap up with a, a fun question. We kind of like to end the podcast on a fun note. Um, but a question that we had asked by membership, um, and I'll insert that here. So I am Stephanie Fuchs. I am a third-year resident at NC State and UNC in the Comparative Pathology Program. So what is she looking forward to doing when we're in Seattle next year? Wow, so much. I mean, Seattle is a great city, right? I'm glad that you're going to be on my coast now, and, and you know, because I'm based in California, so I won't be and crazily time lagged <laughs> when I get there. Um, but so many interesting things. We just talked to the annual meeting committee 
um, today they're planning all kinds of fantastic stuff. I, I want to go to, you know, hopefully DEI will have events. I hope that we'll have lots and lots of trainees there. Um, and, you know, maybe maybe I can persuade my husband to come up and, and actually sit in, like, uh, on our uh, awards ceremony and, and on the president's reception next year. So those are things that I look forward to. But the annual meeting is always a lot of fun. It's great. It's been great this year. And I hope you guys will be there with your podcast. Well, we've had a fantastic time this year with all of those who sat down with us to record podcasts. And we just want to really extend our thank you to Dr. Deal uh, for supporting this podcast from the beginning um, and get, helping us get it off the ground. And, and thank you to her and, and the whole board of directors and ACVP leadership uh, for the support of this endeavor. And we hope to continue on with the podcast and expand it even more to reach more voices. And thank you all so much for listening as well. We wouldn't be here without you, and we are always here to collaborate. Having someone like you, Dr. Deal, as our current leader is incredible. Thank you again. And this has been a conversation in veterinary pathology, the ACVP podcast. Thanks again to our guests, Dr. Lori Deal, as well as excellent questions from Dr. Basil Asaf and Dr. Stephanie Fuchs. As always, the contents of this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American College of Veterinary Pathologists or the associated companies institutions of those involved. This audio is property of the American College of Veterinary Pathologists. We appreciate you listening, and we look forward to our conversation.